Um, we're going to be reading from Psalm 2. I'm going to be going through the Psalms during this time of Advent. So if you would turn with me to Psalm 2, um, this is the Word of God. This is um, what we hold all of our authority to. Um, and yeah, I'm just grateful to be here to read it to you guys. So join with me um, in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on, on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come together um, and, and, and learn from it, learn of your love and your glory, Lord. I pray for Andrew as he comes up to share with us all that he's prepared this week, that he would speak through him, you would calm his nerves, and you would just um, fill him with your spirit. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for bringing us here this morning. Amen. Thanks, Jess. Thanks for uh, reading that. Um, if you're visiting or you're new or, 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 or whatever, and you don't know who I am, my name's Andrea. I'm one of the pastors here at Village, and you're really welcome. I hope you've been made to feel welcome. Um, we're starting, uh, we're starting a new series we, um, in, our, our, in our sermons uh, for Advent, um, and we're going to be studying four different psalms throughout the month of uh, December leading up to Christmas Eve, and we'll have our last gathering of the, of the year. Um, Advent, maybe you don't, you've never thought about Advent before. Advent for me growing up was just about the, the chocolate calendars, which I still love, by the way. And in fact, my wife got me a nice chocolate yesterday, so that was good. Um, but... Um, Advent is more than just calendar, right? Advent, the word Advent means arrival, means coming, and it signifies that the start of an event or the arrival of a person. And in the church, Advent is that four-week season leading up to, to Christmas because during that time we're anticipating the, the coming of Jesus. It's a time to reflect on the, I suppose, the unexpected nature of, of Jesus' humble birth, right? The King of Kings doesn't come uh, in some with some grand um, announcement, he comes and is born among the, among the animals in a cattle shed. But we join with the anticipation, not just of, of remembering his, his birth, but looking forward to his second coming when he will come again as, to, to reign and rule as the king of kings forever. Uh, and that's why we, we're starting this series called The Coming of the King. Um, and today we're going to start looking at Psalm 2 and our focus is looking for the king. That's going to be our first one. And if you want to get ahead and you want to be thinking about next week, we're going to be uh, looking at Psalm 89. So if you have a Bible at home, read Psalm 89 a few times uh, this coming week for, for next week. Um, Psalm 2 this morning, as we heard, 
It's about the coming of the wrath of God. And I was joking earlier, like, Christmas is coming, but so is God's wrath. So, hey, happy Christmas, everybody. Um, but let's look at Psalm chapter 2 this morning. Um, can I just say as well, uh, we, we announced that Eliza was born earlier, and you guys weren't here. So uh, Tom and Amy are here this morning. Can we just uh, say welcome to baby Eliza? Uh, great. Love you guys. Um, I think it's fair to say that, that we live in a, a culture of, of self-sovereignty, right? What does that mean? Well, it just means that, that we live in a culture and a time where, where freedom is the most important thing, self-expression. That's the most important thing. It's, it's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. Um, I never expected to watch, when I was a younger man, never expected to watch Disney movies, but now I see a fair amount of Disney. And, and the, the main plot line of any Disney movie is be true to yourself. Don't let anybody, even the people who care most about you, tell you who you are. And, and most importantly, if you just follow your heart, you'll find freedom and fulfillment and happiness. And that's the kind of driving undercurrent of our culture. It's, the, it's that desire for, for freedom, self-freedom, self-expression, self-sovereignty. I am the, the king, the, the monarch, the ruler, the god of my own life. It, that is the, the basic driver of, of all the major movements in our day. So you think of the, the things that are always talked about. Uh, you think of the trans movement or, the, or abortion. These are the di- desire for, um, I know I'm starting with the gentle things <laughs> the first Sunday of Advent. That's a desire for biological freedom, right? That's basically what it is. Same-sex marriage and gay rights, these are driven by a desire for sexual freedom. The, the free speech movement is based on a desire for freedom of expression. Um, in, in the film, The Fellowship of the Ring, one of the characters, Boromir, he declares, Gondor has no king, Gondor needs no king. And I would suspect that for many in our culture, most of us, a lot of us, their sentiment might be similar to that. I have no king. I need no king. But I wonder, is this really true? Is it really true that we don't need a king? And is it even true that we really feel that way if we're deep down honest with ourselves? Now, I know that in this part of the world that the royal family is a divisive topic, but um, as an observation, last year when, when the queen, was it last year when the queen died? I think so. Um, time moves so quickly. When the queen died and I was kind of looking at what was going on and seeing things in the news and so on, I saw a tension arise. A tension between a culture that says, I, I, I'm the king of my own life. I'm the ruler of my own life. And yet, an outpouring of appreciation for a ruler. See, in the days and the weeks following the death of the queen, the outpouring of appreciation for her, I think, revealed that the people still need, and probably even want, even though we might not admit it, a good and true and faithful leader ruling over us. So, so there was kind of three sentiments that were, that were said over and over and over again about the, about the queen. She was lauded for her sense of duty. People were praising her for her unwavering commitment to her role. It seemed like people had, had come to, to see her, people in England anyway, had come to see her as, as the head of some kind of family, the family of the nation, if you like. And not only did people embrace that, they accepted that. People talked about during the COVID crisis that, that she was there as the steady, stable figure. Another sentiment was about her sacrifice, her sacrificial service. Like the last public photo that came out of, of the Queen was her greeting the latest in a string of prime ministers, but that's another story. She got out of her sickbed at the age of 96 
days before she died, to fulfill her duties, sacrificially. But probably the one thing that people talked about the most was the longevity of her reign. The queen was the queen for the whole lives of most of the world's population. And it seems that people draw comfort and stability from a ruler who is constant and never changes. And my point is that that even in a culture that prioritizes self-sovereignty and and freedom above all things, there is still a a deep desire within us all for for a, a dutiful ruler who is sacrificial in their service and who is constant and stable and present. In Psalm chapter 2, it was originally a coronation song and it would have been sung on the days when a new king of Israel was installed on the throne. But this Psalm is is not just about the the kings that would rule over that ancient uh, ancient kingdom of Israel, which is very different from the, the nation of Israel today, by the way. It's actually also pointing forward to a new and better king, a new and better kingdom. And so it has something to say to us today. See, in this psalm, I think that we see the same desire for for self-freedom, for self-autonomy, for self-sovereignty that we have in our culture. And just like in our culture, the desire for freedom is a desire for the wrong kind of freedom. And this desire for the wrong kind of freedom actually reveals to us our deep need for the kingship of Jesus. And now we all have a choice, and how we all have a choice to make. And we're going to see four things today, cheery subjects. We're going to see that we've rebelled against God. We're going to see that the wrath of God is coming. We're going to see that God has declared his king, and we're going to see that we have a choice to make. So let's look at this first part, that we have rebelled against God. Let me look at verses 1 to 3 again. They're on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Um, It says this, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now the Old Testament readers of this psalm, they would have understood this as, as uh, that the, the nations and the kings mentioned here are, are the, the Gentile kingdoms, those outside the nation of Israel that, that were surrounding the kingdom of Israel. They were people that were under the influence and protection and provision of the kingdom of Israel, but they were not themselves part of it. They were smaller nation states who had had pledged allegiance, who had paid homage to the king. And so they would be loyal to the king of Israel. And then when enemies came and attackers came, they had the protection of the king to fight for them. When famine came, they had the provision of the king to provide for them. But... Here they are, and it seems like they're thinking about rebellion, doesn't it? They're plotting together to break free from the king of Israel because they think that they can do better on their own. Even though they're enjoying the provision of the king and the protection of the king, they think to themselves, well, let's see how we can get on on our own. Instead of submitting to somebody else, let's find our own sovereignty. Now, the kings and the rulers, in light of the New Testament and in our modern reading, it means something broader than just the heads of government. It's talking about all human beings that have influence over others. And that's all of us, right? Um, you might not be a media mogul or a news presenter or a movie star or a celebrity or an influencer, but you have influence over people in your life. All of us are both influenced by others and influence other people. And so this psalm is talking, uh, talking about rebellion against God. It's talking to all of us. Every single person who has been born, apart from the Lord Jesus, has rebelled against God in this way. We have all, one time or another, said, 
I don't want anyone telling me how to live my life. I don't need anyone. Um, it's funny that there are different versions of history, isn't it? Haley and I talk about this all the time because um, she went to a Catholic school and I didn't. And our versions of history of this island are very different. Like we were brought up, they taught very different things. But according to Psalm 2, the history of the human race is not about class wars or social struggle or gender wars or racial oppression. oppression. According to the Bible, the history of the human race is about humanity's rebellion against God. Right? Human beings don't agree on very much, do we? But... There is agreement in this one thing. We all want freedom from God. We want freedom from God. Right from the start of this psalm, it, we see that, that people plot against the Lord. But we also see in the very first verse that it's a pointless exercise. See, when it asks, why do they plot in vain? It's not asking for a reason. We'll see the re reason much later. But it's more like asking, what's the point? Right? Why, why are you doing this? It's pointless. So like Abigail, who's five, um, I mean, she, she'll be six next, next month. Um, I think she thinks her birthday's like Boxing Day, but it's like the middle of January. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, but it's like her, when she's supposed to be getting ready for school in the morning, and this actually happened on Friday morning, when I went into her room, she's standing there still in her jammies with a pair of pants on her head, dancing around with a Barbie, singing a Christmas song. I'm like, why are you doing this? I'm not asking for a reason. I'm saying this is pointless. This is fruitless. This is a pointless exercise. Because we both know that in the end, she's going to get ready for school, right? Whether she likes it or not, that's going to happen. So what you're doing is pointless. So why rebel against God? It's a pointless exercise. Because like it or not, God is going to be God. God is going to do what God is going to do. And there's nothing we can do to stop him. But still, the people conspire against God and say, let's be free. We don't need his rule. We're autonomous people. We have the right to choose what to do with our lives. This is what we all do, isn't it? Even though we have the choice to, to live under the rule and protection and provision of God, we say, we don't need God. Nobody can tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me who I am, how to live. But here's the thing. The desire for freedom from God is like a fish desiring freedom from water. Right? The fish was designed to live and flourish and enjoy life in the water. And outside of those conditions, it'll die. And God has designed us to live in certain conditions, to live under his rule and authority. And outside of that, we will perish. And you may say, well, that's not fair. Like, who's God? Who's God to tell me how to live? Why does, why does he get to choose the conditions of what I do with my life? Well, let me put it this way. This way. My poor kids, they're going to need therapy in years to come. Because I keep talking about them publicly. This year, we gave Finley a, a toy sword for his birthday. It was a you know, plastic sword. This side. It was quite pointy and, and hard. And it's from a video game and, that he really wanted, and he loves it. Now, imagine he took that gift we had given him, and he started using it to hurt other people. So he starts beating a sister about the head with it, or like stabbing the dog or something. Would we continue to let him to do that? No, absolutely not. Of course we wouldn't. The toy is his only because we gave it to him. And that means that we get to set the conditions of how he uses it, you see? Likewise, we as a human race, as human beings, only have life because God has given us life and therefore he gets to set the conditions of how we use it. It means that there are conditions to us having life and there are ways in which we are meant to use it. You see? 
And it also means that, that when we live under the rule of God, submitting to the kingship of Jesus, we will flourish and, and have joy and have life. But to run away from God and, and to say, I don't need God, I can do things in my own way, leads to death like the fish out of water. And so when we desire freedom from God, we aren't desiring freedom at all. Freedom from God isn't really freedom, just like for, for the fish, freedom from water isn't really freedom. Think about the kings in this psalm. The kings and the nations and the people who are saying, we don't need God. Well, what happens if they get what they want? If they break free from the, the rule of the king, right? Sure, they'll have their own sovereignty. They'll be outside his kingship, yes. But what happens when their enemies come? What happens when their enemies come? Who's going to fight for them? Or what happens when that year there's no rain and, and, and the famine comes? Who's going to provide for them? Likewise for us. What happens if we get what we want? What happens if we get free from God? Well then, what happens when, when the sickness comes? Or what are we going to do when the loneliness or depression or the breakups come? What are we going to do when our greatest enemy, death, comes? Who's going to fight for us then? Maybe you've experienced this. When life gets hard and you realize, I don't have the answers. And you realize that you don't have what it takes. And the idea of just being yourself and following your heart somehow isn't enough. I know we've all experienced moments like that in life. Or maybe you've even thought about death. And you think, well, what, am I, what can I do in the face of death? See, we might well say when things are good, I have no king, I need no king. But in the end, we will discover that we very much do need a king. And so our desire for freedom reveals to us that, that we need a king who will provide for us, who, who will protect us and who will fight for us. And the question then has to be asked, well, who is this king? And what will happen if we continue to rebel against God? Well, we see in Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 2 that, that, that the wrath of God has come, and that's our second part of this psalm. And we see this in verses 4 to 5. It says, He who sits, on the, sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his furies, saying, we'll come to what he says later. Now, as the threat of German invasion grew in World War II, the English made huge efforts um, in, in both coastal and sea division, uh, division defenses, right? Uh, all along the coastline, uh, there were fixed lines of trenches with, with gun positions. They built watchtowers. They put mines in the water in the coast. There were guns overlooking the channel. They had anti-aircraft guns and, and, and searchlights everywhere. And that's the usual course of action when your enemies plot against you, when there is a threat you, this is what you do, you shear up your defenses. But not God. In the face of his enemies plotting against him and rebelling against him, God just laughs. He doesn't build up his defenses. He laughs. He, he, in fact, he mocks them. He scoffs them. He holds them in derision. There, there's almost a sense in which this is saying, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> you, know, you, you think you can rebel against me? Like, you, you guys remember Scrappy-Doo? Remember Scrappy-Doo? Like some of you are too young, but Scooby-Doo Scooby -Doo had a cousin who was a wee puppy. I don't know why Scooby was huge and Scrappy was tiny, but anyway, he was. And he'd be like, you know, like with his wee tiny fist, let me out, let me out. 
This is what's happening here. It's like in those cartoons when someone's, you know, when you're holding somebody's head and they're like swinging but they can't reach you. That's what's happening here. There is a sense in which it is, it is futile. It's, it's, it's pointless. God sees his enemies and he laughs. He's like, oh, isn't that cute? Think you can fight against me? Now, this isn't saying that God doesn't love the world or that in this moment he isn't being loving. God is love and he can never be untrue to who he is. But, but the writer of his psalm, like any good writer, is using language to make a statement. He wants to capture our imagination to get his point across that this is not a fair fight. These puny kings and rulers are no match for the God of heaven. Despite what culture tells us or what we might think, there is no epic duel between good and evil. It just doesn't exist. No matter what people think, God is always in control. This isn't God on one side and the devil on the other, equal matched enemies fighting against each other. That's not how it is. God has ultimate control. He isn't panicked when his enemies conspire against him. He just laughs. There is nobody that can stand against the Lord. There is no power that can even come close to matching him. Now, this is the fact that God laughs at his enemies is both a comfort and a terror. For Christians, there is so much comfort from comes that knowing that God simply laughs at his enemies. Who doesn't want to be on the side of the one who doesn't even have to make defenses? One who can just laugh at his enemies. Proverbs 29, 25 says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If God is protecting us, then we have nothing to fear. He is the one who laughs at his enemies. But it's not just a comfort, it's also terrifying. Because if you're not a friend of God, then you're an enemy of God. And if there's one thing you don't want, it's to be an enemy of God, right? Because in verse 5, we get a wee glimpse of his wrath. See, the rebellious people, these nations and kings and rulers and peoples, they're getting away with nothing. Because God is simply just delaying his judgment. His wrath hasn't yet been poured out, but simply the speech of God is enough to terrify his enemies. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Have you ever seen that video online of... uh, the guy who's sitting beside this huge tiger and he's like getting a, cell, a photo taken with it and he's like, yeah, and then the tiger just goes like, one of these, like looks at him like that, flinches and the guy jumps up and runs a mile. Like the tiger, the tiger probably hasn't even noticed him. He's just like, what is going on? He just kind of like looks at him and the guy is scared for his life because he knows the awesome part of this thing he's right beside. And God just has to hint at his strength. He just has to speak of his wrath and power, and his enemies are terrified. This is a warning shot. God will not re- let rebellion against him go on forever. One day, justice will be done. But the good news is that, that God is still delaying that. He's still delaying dealing with his enemies because he is patient and kind. And he is still giving people time to repent and turn to him. Listen, even the worst person in the world can turn to God, and he will receive them with, with open arms of forgiveness. But one day, God will meet rebellion with wrath. Now, the question I want to ask is, why shouldn't he? Why shouldn't he? Because God is righteous and good and just. And a good king 
It is one who defends his people by dealing harshly with his enemies, right? So think of like an old medieval king inside the castle. And the enemies are surrounding him on every side, besieging the castle. Those who are inside the, the castle walls, in subject, in, in subject to the king, are under his protection and provision. And in order to protect his people and protect his kingdom, the good king will deal harshly with his enemies. For the good of those people inside the walls, the king will deal with his enemies. But for those who rebel, those who are outside, those who have put themselves outside the protection of the king, they've also put themselves in a state of being enemies of the king. And listen, this may not be the easiest thing to hear, but we need to face up to this. And maybe you're thinking, flip me, this isn't a very cheery start for uh, the start of the Christmas season. It's getting a bit heavy. But, but I wouldn't be doing my job or, or serving you very well if I just skipped over this. And when we read verses like, he will speak to them in his wrath, we're not, we're not just meant to understand what they're saying. We're, we're meant to feel a sense of terror when we hear them. When we go after self-sovereignty and freedom from God and try to make ourselves God and rulers of our own lives, we are doing exactly the same thing as the kings and the people in Psalm 2. We are rebelling against God. And the God who, who made us, gave us life, and holds our very breath in his hands is rightly angry at rebellion against him. And because he is good, this is not on either end. It's not he's got wrath, but it is because he is good and just and holy, he cannot let rebellion go unpunished. So what's God's response to this rebellion? Well, the third thing we see is that God declares his king. Look at verses 6 to 9, and we'll see God declare this king. So what's going on here is the people are trying to set themselves up as kings, and God says, no, 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 I'm declaring my king. He says this, as for me, God speaking, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them or rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations set themselves against God, and, and we declare ourselves to be king. God says, no, that's not how this works. I have set my king. So what kind of king is he? Who is this king that we're looking forward to coming? Well, firstly, he's God's chosen one. And we see that in, in the context of, of, of history, this psalm is talking about King David and his descendants. God appointed him to rule. But, but th these kings all point forward to Jesus. Jesus is God's chosen king who has been enthroned not on some physical Mount Zion, the place of kings in ancient Israel, but enthroned in heaven. As the, the king of all kings, God has placed him there, and the one that God enthrones can never be dethroned. Right? This is what Advent is looking forward to, the birth of the king. At the advent of Christ, God put down a marker in history and said, the king is here. Not at some royal hospital with all the world's media waiting outside, but in the back room of some ramshackled house among the farm animals. 
king, God's chosen one, the, the one whom uh, would later declare that all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him in a tiny newborn baby, like the one we can hear right now. Not even to, able to hold up his own head, but yet holding up the entire universe by the word of his power. He's God's chosen one, and he will never be dethroned. He's not just God's chosen one. The king is God's own son. Verse 7 says, You're my son, today I have begotten you. Now, this doesn't mean that God made the son. God the son has always existed. He was not made. But, it, but saying the word begotten, which is an old-fashioned word, it, it just means that it's talking about his power and authority. In the ancient times, the begotten son of the king would hold the same authority as his father, the king. He would have the same essence as his father. That's what this is talking about. So to say that Jesus is begotten means that, that he is the same in essence as the father and he has the same power and authority. This is why the, the, the creed says he is begotten, not made. Now twice in his life did God declare Jesus to be his son. And declaring Jesus to be his son is actually saying he is the king. At his baptism, the voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. God saying, hey, this guy, he's the king. Look out for him. Secondly, then we see his transfiguration when, when his glory is revealed before his death. The same voice came from heaven and said, this is my son. Twice Jesus was declared to be the son of God, but through his resurrection, it was only through his resurrection that his kingship was once and for all established. See, before Jesus, there were many kings of ancient Israel, many chosen kings, but only one of them has ever risen from the dead. His resurrection proved him to be the king, not just of the Jewish people, but the king of kings. In Acts chapter 13, Paul actually quotes Psalm 2, and he relates Jesus' resurrection to his kingship. He says, but God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. And we, that's him, bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, i.e. your ancestors in ancient Israel, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Jesus is not just a king, he's the risen king. Yes, Jesus was born king. Yes, the king of kings did lie in the manger. But it's only through his resurrection from the dead that Jesus is proven to be the king of kings. Christmas is only good news because Easter is true. And this is why we can trust him. This is why we can take refuge in him. This is why it makes sense to put our hope only in him. What other king or queen or government or politician or celebrity or influencer has ever risen from the dead? What other thing that we trust, like money or, or jobs or relationship or, or even our self-sovereignty and freedom can do for us what the King of Kings has done? We're out here putting our hope and trust and futures and things that can only ever let us down. But meanwhile, Jesus is, is, seated in, is seated in the heavens as the risen King saying to come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. Only Jesus is the King that we need because only Jesus is risen from the dead. He's God's chosen one, and he's God's son, the risen king. And verse 8 tells us that his, that his kingdom will be over all the nations. 
The king of kings is not some local counselor. He's not a prime minister of one country. The king of kings, and he will rule over all people, all nations. And this hasn't yet been fulfilled, but that day is coming because in Advent, we don't just look back to, to the birth of this baby in the manger. We look forward to the day when Jesus will return and conquer all those who stand against him. He is mighty God, Prince of Peace, everlasting Father, and of his rule there will be no end. And one day, every knee, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's like Abby, she's going to get dressed for school. We're going to bow the knee to Jesus. And we either do that willingly or one day we do it unwillingly. Just like the good king that he is, he will deal harshly with his enemies. That's the right thing for a good king to do. He will smash his enemies as easily as you would smash a clay pot with a rod of iron. He will put an end to injustice, an end to war, an end to invasions and genocide and terrorism. He will destroy evil and pain and suffering and grief and loneliness and depression once and for all. The King of Kings, the Son of God, the risen King will return not as a helpless baby, as a victorious, conquering king. And so we have to ask ourselves, what shall we do in response to the coming of this king? And that leads us to our final point this morning. We have a choice to make because Psalm chapter 2 leads us to a choice. Look at verses 10 to 12 right at the end. Now therefore, see what he's saying? Because of all that's happening above, because you're rebelling against God, because God is laughing at that, and because his wrath is coming, because he is setting his king, therefore, you have a choice to make. O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In light of all that we've seen this morning, you might expect God to condemn everybody that stands before him, everybody that rebels against him, just to write them off and destroy them. And he could, by the way. He could. But this is what, not what God does, right? God holds back his, his righteous judgment and instead comes to us with an appeal. He says, be wise and be warned. Wise and be warned. God is saying, make the wise choice here. There is still time to turn away from making gods of ourselves. Instead, turn to him. And this is the wise choice to make. You see, the world says that that, that, that wisdom is self-autonomy, self-freedom, freedom from everything, freedom from responsibility to anyone. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to make my own decisions. But God says, wisdom is choosing to submit to the King of Kings. And if we understand who, who the King of Kings is, the only wise choice is to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Let me say that again. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now that's an interesting mix of emotions, isn't it? You got fear and rejoicing and trembling. I was chatting to a friend of mine earlier on the week and I was like, what does rejoice with trembling mean? And he was like, do you know those old videos of the Beatles back in the day and you have these teenage girls here just like shaking, but they're so happy, but they're terrified, but they're, I feel like this may be what's going on here. Screaming, excited, terrified, ah, overwhelmed. But all of us who are believers, 
kind of get a sense of, of what this mix of emotions is, right? Like the old hymn, Amazing Grace, it says, It was grace that taught my heart to fear. For grace my fears relieved. You see, fear and trembling is the right posture to have in service and submission to the king. But also, service and submission to the king is the, is the place of rejoicing. We may find happiness in going our own way for a while. Like we may find glimpses of joy in life here and there. But true and lasting and eternal joy is only found in submitting to the King of Kings. He says, kiss the Son, lest you perish. Now, now, we think of kissing as an affectionate show of emotion. Three people in my life that I kiss. I think that's my battery. Pause on, isn't it? Me, people, but. In the ancient world, to kiss the king, that's talking about to pay homage to him. Right? It's a sign that you embraced his rule and his kingship. So maybe you've seen in films or in TV shows where, uh, you know, somebody, the king has a ring on his finger and you have to, you know, kiss the, kiss the ring on the finger. Or like the movie, movie Gladiator, um, when the old emperor dies, the, 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 his son takes the throne and he has this ring and he makes his sister kiss the ring on his finger to, to, to show that she is sub- submitting to his rule and authority. It's just a similar idea. The invitation to kiss the Son is the invitation to pay homage to Jesus. To say, Jesus, you are the King. And I, and I want to bow the knee to you now. To say through our actions that, that we are loyal to Him. And so the choice that's offered to us is clear. Either serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, recognize Jesus as King, or perish in His wrath. To choose self-sovereignty is to be broken with the rod of iron and dashed like pottery. The wrath of God is for his enemies, and his enemies are those who don't embrace him. But, but, I want want you to see the grace in this psalm because it finishes with an invitation. An invitation into blessing and refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the Son, and this is what you receive. God is offering protection from His wrath. He's offering eternal life of flourishing and peace and joy and contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction. The world we live in is in turmoil, isn't it? Like, we know this. We, we, we just know it. Life is hard. Worries mount up. We don't know what's coming around the corner. But... There is refuge to be found. Kissing the sun. There is blessing to be found by turning to Jesus. One teacher, Christopher Ash, put it this way. He said, God wants us to be moved by the warning and wooed by the blessing. That's the sweet spot, isn't it? Moved by the warning and, 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 and wooed by the blessing. 
See, this promised king is good and kind, and today he is still offering all those who turn to him both blessing and refuge. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want blessing and refuge? Who doesn't want a sure knowledge that that we are cared for, that we are secure and safe, no matter what comes along? All of us, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we need something outside of ourselves, don't we? All of us have or will have at some point in our lives times when we know that we are helpless. And and the king who offers us blessing and refuge isn't far off, right? This is not the the image of uh, the king extending some cold hand from heaven saying, kiss the ring on my finger. The king who offers us blessing knows our needs. He knows the pain and brokenness of the world we live in. He knows our own fears and failures. This time of year, I love this time of year. If you know me, you know that. Like when it gets to December, I'm 100% into Christmas. But for, it's so often for a lot of us, it's a time of year when our pain is magnified, isn't it? When, when, when the loneliness is just more lonely, when the money worries are more worrisome, when your grief seems like amplified, and it was into, into that brokenness and into that darkness that, that, that this King of Kings, Jesus himself, God himself came. He stooped low. He humbled himself to become one of us. And this is good news. The King of Kings entered our reality. He became one of us. He walked in our shoes. He, he walked through the muck with us. He experienced pain and loneliness and hunger and grief and betrayal. This is the one who, who offers us blessing and refuge. Like the, the words of the Carol, O Holy Night, says this, The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials born to be our friend. He knows our need, to our weakness he is no stranger. Behold your king. That's what this king looks like, right? That's what Advent is all about. And here's what I want to finish with this morning. Jesus is this promised king. We've seen that from the psalm. He is the one who has walked in our shoes. And, and the night, as, when he was an adult, the night before he was crucified, somebody did kiss the son. He was kissed. See, Judas, one of his disciples, comes along and kisses him, which would have been a perfectly normal thing to do. It would have been beautiful thing to do if it were the kiss of homage and loyalty but he kisses him not in loyalty but in betrayal and in that single moment that that, that embodies all of humanity's rebellion against God because it's not always open rebellion it's always it's kind of always sneaky isn't it it's betrayal in that moment that embodies all of humanity's rebellion against God, Jesus, the Son of God, was betrayed and handed over to his enemies. But listen, instead of God pouring out his wrath and punishment on his betrayers, God poured out his wrath upon his only son. The king sacrificed himself to take on the punishment for our rebellion against him. Verse 12 says, Kiss the son lest his wrath, lest his wrath be kindled. But when he received the betrayer's kiss, the wrath of God was kindled. In that moment, not against 
us, the ones who rebelled against him, but against Jesus, his only begotten son, the very one who was declared to be king. So instead of receiving the righteous anger of the king, we can receive the forgiveness and blessing and refuge. This is the invitation. Accept the forgiveness on offer. Turn to the king. Kiss the son. Embrace him as Lord. And eternal blessing and refuge are yours. So as we enter this Advent season, remembering his birth, and that's great. And, and, and listen, nobody's going to be enjoying the parties and the food and the drinks and all more than me, right? I'm going all in. But let's remember his birth, but look forward to his return as the king. Remember that he is good. Remember that he is kind. Remember that he has sacrificed himself for our blessing and refuge. Turn to him. Say, Jesus, you are Lord. And I accept your offer of blessing and refuge. Let me pray for us. Then we're going to sing and then we're going to take communion together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word, firstly, that is true and is living and is active. We want to thank you for how you're speaking to us this morning through my imperfect words. Your perfect word is reaching our ears and our hearts. Uh, Father, we thank you for the coming of the king. We thank you that, oh Lord, if you hadn't set your king on Zion, <laughs> we would be lost. I say we thank you for that. We thank you for King Jesus. We thank you um, that the offer of your grace is still open towards us. Father, I pray that all of us would just once again choose to pay homage to the king, to serve him, to submit to him, Father, I pray that that would be uh, what we would do in a fresh way this Advent season. Father, thank you for the grace we've seen in this passage that your offer of salvation, of blessing and refuge is open to all of us who believe in you. Father, for anyone who hasn't yet done that, we just pray, Lord, that you would, you would open their eyes this morning and see that the only place of blessing and refuge through the storms of life and, and life to come is in you. You're a good king just king, you're a holy king, you're the risen king, you're the king who has sacrificed himself for our good. So we give you all the praise and glory. And as we come to your table and take this bread and wine, we pray, Lord, that we would be reminded again of that, of the betrayer's kiss, of your sacrifice for us. And praise things for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we're going to just do that. We do every Sunday in our church. We, we take communion together. We have a piece of bread and some wine. And it's symbolic of uh, Jesus' physical sacrifice on the cross when his body was, as it were, broken and his, his 